Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 127, recorded on July 24th, 2019. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others find the show and make us a little bit happier. Today, we will talk about the EU versus Amazon, about startup brain drain in Europe, alternative meats, the future of food tech in Europe, and much more. We have also prepared an interview with Seth Bannon uh, from the VC Fund 50 Years, recorded by our freelance reporter Miriam Partington at uh, Tech Open Air in Berlin. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going? Hi, Andre. It's going well, except for the sad news that we learned last week that Vienna's Pioneers Festival will be shutting down their events and conference section. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a sad, a sad note for me because I've really enjoyed going to the Pioneers events over the years. Um, but they will be continuing their other operations and I really wish them, um, the best and continuing to, to forge a new way forward. Yeah, I totally didn't see this one uh, coming. It's uh, pretty sad. So I hope they will uh, they will continue doing whatever uh, they want to be doing in the future and maybe at some point to be back with some form of an event. I really like Vienna and I really like uh, Pioneers. Now let's talk about the rest of uh, the news uh, coming from uh, last week. Uh, I will start with uh, uh, my segment and the big news for me from the last week. Uh, so the European Commission opens a formal antitrust investigation into the working practices of Amazon. And the main question that the European Commission is looking for an answer to is whether Amazon uses sales data on its platform to gain an unfair advantage over third-party sellers who offer their goods on the same platform. So basically, obviously, there are uh, quite a bunch of uh, smaller companies uh, selling their goods on Amazon. And then the question is whether Amazon can collect uh, the data about uh, what works and what doesn't, and then use this data to basically overcompete uh, these uh, people uh, on its platform. Uh, the investigation of the European Commission is headed, obviously, by no one else but the competition commissioner, Margaret uh, Vestager, who is well known for being a pain in the back for so many major tech companies operating in the European Union, including Facebook, Apple, Google, and so on and so forth. So here is a short quote uh, from her. The quote begins, e-commerce has boosted retail competition and brought more choice and better prices. We need to ensure that large online platforms do not eliminate these benefits through anti-competitive behavior. I have therefore decided to take a very close look at Amazon's business practices and its dual role as a marketplace and retailer to assess its compliance with the European Union competition rules. The quote ends. Actually, interesting. Uh, an interesting note here that this could be the last investigation opened by Vestager uh, because her tenure as the competition commissioner is due to end in October this year, thus in uh, three months. 
And it's really interesting uh, what uh, what happens afterwards. But back to the investigation, according to the statement uh, by the commission, it will look into two particular aspects of uh, Amazon's uh, working practices. And I'm going to do some free quoting around here. So the first, uh, the first aspect is the standard agreements between Amazon and marketplace sellers, which allow Amazon's retail business to analyze and use third-party seller data. In particular, uh, the commission will focus on whether and how the use of accumulated marketplace seller data by Amazon as a retailer affects competition. So that's uh, what we already mentioned. And now comes the second aspect, and that is the role of data in the selection of the winners of the so-called buy box and the impact of Amazon's potential use of competitively sensitive marketplace seller information on that selection. So the so-called buy box is displayed prominently on Amazon, and it allows uh, customers to add items from a specific retailer directly into their shopping carts. And winning the buy box, according to the commission, seems... A key for marketplace sellers as a vast majority of transactions are done through it. As usual, we have no clue at all how long this investigation will take, uh, so we will update you when we hear more. What we do know is that there was another investigation uh, into Amazon's practices in Europe that ended just now. This one was in Germany. It took eight months uh, to be completed. It started in November last year, and Amazon just got out of it. And uh, it, uh, the investigation itself, it resulted in Amazon changing a lot of uh, uh, things in its seller terms. And the changes were made worldwide and not just in Germany or in Europe. And uh, the changes made, they concern uh, uh, stuff like liability provisions, uh, some non-disclosure agreements, uh, the exclusivity of court of jurisdiction, uh, for the sellers and so on. And simply speaking, the new terms uh, that Amazon had to introduce, uh, they are supposedly much better for the sellers. So this is a kind of a win uh, for the European authorities. And I am really curious to see whether things will get better after this uh, European Commission's investigation is over. Now, Natalie, you are the big lover of the big tech. Uh, what do you think of uh, this one? Well, I don't know if um, that is accurate to say, but what I will <laughs> say is that Amazon is certainly a worthy adversary for Vestager's last investigation as competition commissioner. I was um, disappointed that she did not um, become commission president as there were some rumors that were suggesting that she might take the helm of the commission itself. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the outcome of this. I think everyone kind of under is on the, on the EU side here um, with the investigation. So I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what that, what comes out of that. Indeed. And probably it's also worth mentioning that what was it last week that we had the prime day, this like big sale on Amazon and then uh, workers of Amazon uh, protested across Europe and I think in the US as well and in particular in Germany there was a pretty big uh, protest and uh, I pr I do think I do wonder uh, rather uh, whether we are going to see more investigations into this uh, uh, part of uh, Amazon's work and practices I wouldn't be surprised if we did. And it's very clear, I think, to everyone that Amazon has had a, an incredible impact on 
retail and on kind of the process of, of buying just about anything in Europe. So it, it's really hard to ignore the impact there. But we did mention on the podcast some of the, the protests last last week, but it didn't stop a lot of people kind of in my kind of direct community and group of friends that, that definitely did take advantage of some of those sweet deals um, on Prime Day. Did you? I didn't, but some people in my household definitely made use of them. <laughs> well, I mean, can't, uh, can't blame them after all. I certainly wouldn't. Anyway, let's talk about something more juicy and tasty, like alternative meats that you wanted to discuss today. Right. So it is my last week in the U.S. I took a little bit of time over here this summer. Um, but before I leave, I wanted to talk about food tech and innovations in this space. And something I really like about this industry is that it has the ability to really touch everyone in a way that a B2B SaaS product doesn't really have that same chance. I mean, while the development of those types of products can be very profitable, if you're able to develop a hot new food tech product that has mass appeal, you can really reach so many people with it. And where it can be really disruptive is how you use technology to change production and shift industries in different ways, whether it's making them reach more people at a lower cost, or if you're able to make them greener or more ethical. And this is a promise that I find really exciting when it comes to food tech. And I produced a piece on the site last week um, that kind of delved into some of these issues and um, found some really exciting um, opportunities in this space. But just to recap here, Food tech covers a very broad spectrum of things here, and we've talked about some of the developments in this space before, such as meals in a bottle or insect proteins. But in the interest of time, I want to talk specifically about alternative meats and things that substitute for meat but are created with plants and not animals. In March, Europe held the first conference on these alternative meats, the Pro-Veg New Food Conference in Berlin. But saying alternative meat in Europe when referring to plant-based foods is pretty controversial. And the European Parliament is looking to be in close consideration to banning some of this meat terminology when referring to plant-based foods. And the proposal that is now being looked at will prevent you from using the word sausage or burger when trying to sell plant-based wow. foods. Vegan and consumer groups in Europe have come out strongly against this. As they say, consumers will be put off meat-free burgers labeled as veggie discs. That really doesn't sound appetizing, but... A number of producers in the food tech space and alternative protein space think that it really can have an opportunity to rebrand. They're thinking positively about it, but there is a precedent for the commission's behavior, um, especially several years back, the European Court of Justice ruled that non-dairy milk type products such as soy and almond milk could not be labeled as milk. So they are considered soy and almond drinks. Um, so it's likely that this re regulation that's on um, the parliament's um, table for for consideration will come to pass as well. But in the U.S., there's no such qualms about calling plant-based foods meat, burgers, or sausage. And of course, the story of summer was and continues to be the Beyond Meat IPO, which upon since going public has risen over 680% since its initial offering. And 
as we speak, the stock is at an all-time high. But if we compare this to what's happened with Uber, for example, where the stock really tanked after launch, you can really see why food tech is such an exciting space right now. In May, Beyond Meat finalized a deal to develop its first production facility outside of the United States. And they chose the Netherlands for that. And they expect things to be in operation by next year. The Netherlands is also home for to the first engineered lab-grown burger, which is made by Mosa Meats, a company which raised a 7.5 million Series A um, last year. And you can buy Beyond Meat at over 700 locations in the Netherlands today. Elsewhere in Europe, lab-grown innovations are developing some of the most exciting food products on the market. And one of these is called from a UK producer called Meatless Farm, which is an alternative meat company based in Leeds in the United Kingdom. And they've begun a pilot program with Whole Foods in the US to put their burgers in the hands of shoppers in the United States. The company already offers products across Europe, Hong Kong, the United Arab Emirates, and Sweden. Sweden is a huge market for these alternative meat protein products. But what I've learned with a lot of plant-based alternative meat products is that they are very difficult to make. And if you have a questionable cooking experience with them, you're more likely to be put off eating them. And that's my experience, but they're much more enjoyable when you have the chance to order them in a restaurant and have them cook perfectly. And that's why the growing opportunities for these foods in restaurants is, I think, a really key area for their growth, which is why exciting it's so exciting that many restaurant chains are embracing these new food techniques. Technologies. Consumers in the Nordics especially have a long history with these foods, and veggie burgers and sausages have commonly been available at fast food chains across the region for years. But a very big development happened this summer where Max Burgers, which is one of Scandinavia's largest fast food chains, launched a new plant-based range with tons of different plant-based options. And Burger Kings across Scandinavia are also providing plant-based options and even vegan options. So distribution deals and getting these products in the hands of consumers, hot, prepared, and ready to eat will be really key to their growth in this sector. And it's one that retailers should especially be paying attention to. And I think the story of Daring Foods, which is a, a company out of Scotland, it really shows the potential in this space. The startup produces alternative chicken products and fish products. And it was launched in April, 2018. The company has just inked a deal with over 9,000 distributors across the UK to get their products in the hands of consumers all across the country. And the company expects to gross over 7 million pounds in their first year's turnover and will find themselves in Scottish grocery stores later this year. So I'm looking forward to trying that when I get home. So we're seeing some really incredible trajectories in these companies, and I hope to see more European entrance in this space. And it's really important that we do see that because for Europe to foster an environment for these products before we have entrance from America and elsewhere coming over and disrupting our own game, especially now that Beyond Meat has has a strong foothold in Europe. So I look forward to following what comes next here. And if you have a great place for plant-based tacos in Europe, please let me know because that's something I've really enjoyed being able to get hot and ready. Um, lots of places in the U.S. since I've been here. Um, and that is something I really would look forward to, um, a European offering. I wouldn't be too surprised if we got something like that in the Netherlands, I think is getting more and more popular, as you mentioned. So Natalie, I mean, obviously a great market and uh, uh, we probably are going to see a lot of new stuff coming. But as it stands right now, what have you tried in terms of uh, veggie burgers and what do you think is the best? 
Okay, so ordering a Beyond Meat burger in a Carl's Jr. or in a fast food restaurant, I've tried lots of different ones. And every time when you order them, they're great. But when you buy the Beyond Meat uh, burger or the Beyond Meat sausage and you try to prepare it at home for the 4th of July like I did, um, this was a bit of a disaster. My whole family was very excited to kind of grill burger, these burgers at home. And it was a complete disaster. Um, we overcooked them. There was, it just didn't look right. didn't smell right. And it really, um, really turned us a lot of us off of eating them. But when you order them in a restaurant, they're always perfect and wonderful. So I think there really needs to, you have to change your cooking and really understand the differences in preparation. So even though they're becoming more available, if you have a bad experience when you try it, you're going to be less likely to try it again. But if you can buy a Beyond Meat taco for $2 and it comes out perfect and wonderful, super accessible, it really kind of whets your appetite for more. Okay, next time I get somewhere where they serve uh, uh, Beyond Meat, I will certainly try it. But it, it is interesting, though, because uh, I always, I've always thought, and I do think still, that it's pretty hard to uh, ruin a, a normal like meat uh, burger when you when you're cooking it. So it's probably apparently it's not the case uh, for for Beyond Meat and all this stuff. No, it's it's definitely a different um, type of uh, cooking, and you really can't apply what you know to. Um, cooking regular meat to cooking these alternative meats. And that's where I think we've really went wrong because we're trying to grill it and kind of cook it really, really well done. And it just doesn't operate in the same way. Um, but always open to, to trying out new things. But if you can get someone to prepare it for you, um, that's really the ticket to really enjoying it because they, they can taste just as good as the real thing. All right. So for the plant-based food aficionados uh, in the audience, let us know what your tastes are and what would you recommend Natalie to taste next when she's back in Europe. In the meantime, let's move on to today's interview. And again, this is a conversation with uh, Seth Bannon from uh, uh, the VC Fund 50 Years. It was recorded uh, at Tech Open Air in uh, Berlin by our freelance reporter Miriam Partington. Let's listen to this one together and we'll be back soon for for the recommendation part. Can you speak a little bit about 50 years and what its overarching aim and vision is? Sure, yeah. So 50 years is a uh, early stage, deep tech focused VC fund. So we support entrepreneurs, uh, typically PhD entrepreneurs that are using technology to build businesses that can both be massively profitable, but also massively positive for the world. So they solve big systemic societal uh, problems. And the, the mission of 50 years. So we actually, we think of ourselves as having a mission, a lot like our portfolio of startups do. Uh, the mission of 50 years is to solve the world's biggest problems through technology entrepreneurship. And so there's basically two ways that we do that. One is we, we find amazing entrepreneurs that are already on that path and we support them with capital and advice and our networks. So we help them move faster and smarter. And then the second way we hope to achieve that is a more sort of meta way. So we, we want to prove to the, broader capital markets, that these type of companies that are solving these big problems are actually really great investments from a purely financial perspective. Um, because if we can if we can prove that, then a bunch of purely greedy capitalists will start investing in more important things. Um, and we can redirect global capital flows into 
more important things. Sure. And is this sector specific? I mean, do you have any particular areas of interest or focus at the moment for the fund? Yeah. So if you can imagine a Venn diagram where one circle was deep tech, which just means you probably need a PhD on the team. One circle was path to a billion dollars a year in revenue if everything goes really well. And one circle was path to massive positive social or environmental impact. The intersection of those three, that's our sweet spot. Um, and so we are very sort of agnostic in terms of the sector. We think that the people that know best what the most interesting sectors are, are actually the people that are building the future, i.e. the entrepreneurs. And so we typically will just listen to what they're telling us and then sort of gut check it to see if we think that we um, agree with where they think the world is heading. We'll basically do anything in the deep tech world except for like a pure small molecule therapeutic company. So like, you know, like a little bear, right? Like that, that kind of stuff we won't do. And then I would say the two the two sectors that we are particularly excited about are uh, food technology. So in uh, particularly alternative proteins and then synthetic biology. So basically using biology to make products or therapeutics in better ways. Sure. Okay. And what's the story behind you wanting to kind of start this impact focus fund, if you like? I mean, what's your personal stake in this? Yeah. So uh, I can give you my, my personal journey. So I um, actually, I started off on the on the impact track. So I was mainly inspired by my mother. So when I was super young, she would do things that were um, actually quite small, but seemed like a big deal to a 10-year-old. Like if she thought a law was unjust, she would get her neighbors together to write our local congresswoman, um, which I thought was super cool. Or um, if she ever saw someone like cutting line at the supermarket, you know, she'd be the person that would march over and say like, excuse me, I saw that this person was- Moms are so good at this. Yeah. They're just ruthless, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> ruthless. And so I thought that was really cool, like crime fighting, you know, superhero stuff. And then when I was um, 12, we were living in a house that was powered by uh, propane gas and there was a leak and a spark and an explosion. And she was in the house at the time and uh, got tossed up and hit the ceiling and hit the floor and was left with- uh, nerve damage and, and brain damage and was, it was permanently disabled after that. And so what happened is she would still see the injustice she saw before, but wouldn't be able to do what she used to do about it. Sometimes a word that she's used 10,000 times just won't come to her. So it's really hard for her to write letters. Um, and so she'd get really sad. So I'd get really sad. Uh, so I basically started to do those things for her. You know, if, if she thought a law was unjust, I'd, I'd wrote by our local congresswoman and say, Hey mom, look, I wrote congressman to Laura. Or if I stopped someone from cutting line, I'd run home, tell her. And so cheered her up, cheered me up, problem solved. And then I, I think it was probably 14 or 15, I realized that there were uh, hundreds of millions of people in the world who were uh, in a similar sort of situation uh, in that they were faced with injustice, but couldn't do anything about it themselves. And basically, I decided that I wanted to become their proxy like I was her proxy. So that kind of set me on the impact track. And I, uh, like most kids, I didn't have any idea of using like capital markets or technology to solve problems. So I did what most people do at that age is I started volunteering for nonprofits. I started working in politics. Uh, helped run campaigns for people running for Senate and governor, uh, worked for President Obama in 2008 on his campaign. Basically, from day one, was just super frustrated with the the technology tools in that world. So all of the nonprofits and all the campaigns that I worked on were using technology that was 10 years behind like the video games that I would play at night to relax. And uh, that was very frustrating to me because I cared about these causes. And I would mainly cope by, by whining about it, um, which... Um, actually worked fine for me, but uh, not so great for the people around me. And uh, I started to annoy you know everyone in my life and started to hear a lot of people say like, why don't you just fix it? Um, so I thought, me fix it? It's an interesting idea. Um, and I knew how to code from high school. So teamed up with some friends, we built a tool uh, that we always wanted to use and it just very accidentally became a startup. Um, and we uh, ended up getting introduced to one of our first customers to a guy who described himself as an angel investor. And at that point, 
we thought it was very strange because we were like, I don't know if we want to talk to any religious fanatics. And then we like literally <laughs> Googled it and we're like, oh, angel investors, they give you money. Um, and, and so he ended up investing and that sort of snowballed somehow into a $600,000 seed round. Quickly realized we had no idea what to do with that money. None of us had any business experience whatsoever. And so we furiously started looking for mentors. And we, we pulled a list of the Yale alumni database and basically emailed everyone that had co-founder or founder in their title. And one of the guys who we happened to email was a guy named Michael Seibel. And at that point, Michael Seibel was just a YC Y Combinator alumni. He's actually now the CEO of Y Combinator. And so he told us about Y Combinator. He's like, hey, it's this thing that's meant for people who understand a space but have no idea about business. You should do that. So we applied, we got in. And by the end of the program, we had some of the largest nonprofits in the country paying us lots of money. And so we were able to raise you know, millions of dollars more. And basically through the process of raising money, I started to become really frustrated with the types of investors that were available to us, right? So, you know, we had every intention of building a billion dollar company, but the reason that we wanted to do it, the thing that actually woke us up every day was the impact we thought we could have, right? So we thought if we could build a really great tool and put it in the hands of all these activists, then we could create a more sort of just society. And that was what drove us. And the only way we could see of achieving that was to build a massive business because we knew we needed to hire the best developers and designers and salespeople and support people. And so for us, the impact and the business kind of went hand in hand. But when we talked to investors, they typically fell into one of two buckets. Either they genuinely cared about the impact, these are like impact investors, but knew nothing about technology or startups or how to hire or sell or any of this stuff and hence couldn't really help us. Um, and we felt like we really needed help. Or they knew a lot about all those things. This is like the Silicon Valley VCs and, and hence could help. But at the end of the day, saw business as a purely like cash on cash game, right? So it's like meant to make money. Um, and so we ended up raising from the latter group because we wanted the help. But we never, it never felt great and we never felt totally aligned with our investors. And I would talk to other largely millennial entrepreneurs who had every intention of building a, you know, 10, 50, $100 billion company, but wanted to do it because it seemed like the best way of solving some big problem. And they would say the same thing, which is, yeah, why do we have to choose between investors that actually understand startups or investors that actually care about our impact mission? Um, and so it was just clear that there was a need for that. And mm -hmm. so in the interest of solving my own problem, team up with my partner, Ella, and founded 50 years. Sorry, that was a really long-winded way. No, no, no. I, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on then. So um, I'm, I'm guessing this is what like an impact business model looks like, right? It's a model where you can sustain yourself as a company. It's for profit, but at the same time, you're doing something good in the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. and we think that, um, you know, historically, impact business has meant that you sacrifice profit in exchange for doing good. But we think that that... Um, is no longer needed. We think that there are a lot of businesses that can be um, founded where you can make a ton of money and do a ton of good. And in fact, those two things reinforce each other, right? So you can find business models where the impact model is so tied into the business model um, that you can literally just put the pe pedal to the metal and go and make a ton of money and do a lot of good. Where basically the ideal is that for every dollar you, you make, you do one unit of good. And so we're trying to show that you don't have to sacrifice good financial performance just to have an impact business. But do you think that this is quite a kind of, not illusory, but a very ambitious thing for a startup, you know, a very young startup that's just starting out to be like, okay, we're going to develop this business model or develop this business itself that's actually going to do both of these things, hit two birds with one stone. Is that realistic for startups? It's not at all illusory. It is very ambitious. Um, <laughs> but the very act of starting a startup is super ambitious, right? Like, to say that we're going to create something out of nothing, that we're going to beat these big, well-funded incumbents, right? Um, that we're going to create something that 
millions of people use and we're going to make millions of dollars. Like that, all that is, is crazy ambitious. And so, yes, um, it is ambitious, but I, I think it's incredibly possible. Um, and I think if, you know, we, we've sort of proven that out, right? So we founded the firm for uh, almost four years ago. Uh, we have invested in almost about, about 50 companies now. If you look at some of the early companies that we supported, they're doing extremely well, right? Um, they're, they're either making a lot of money or they've gone on to raise follow on funding from some of the best investors in the world, not just impact investors, but sort of mm-hmm. purely financial investors. And so, yeah, I think it's absolutely possible. And it's not only possible, I think it, is like smart, right? So I think there are underlying currents that are changing that make it um, more likely that these companies succeed than, than than ones that are just chasing profit. But does this take um, VC funding? Is that the only way that startups can really get launched um, in the kind of impact space is by having this kind of early intervention of, of funding from, yeah. So the impact space is super broad. So um, on... And it means different things to different people. So on, on one end of the spectrum, it means we're not going to do shitty things, right? So we're not going to pollute the environment. We're not going to mistreat our employees. We're not going to mistreat our customers. And, but, but our, our, our actual business might be like making coffee, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. what we're doing isn't like really amazing, but we're not going to do anything bad, right? So that's, that's sort of the, the one end of impact. We, we, we're not super interested in that. Moving a little bit beyond that is, we're doing something and um, it's actually good for the world, right? So we're actually making the world actively better through our business. Um, and there's a huge spectrum there. And the vast majority of impact businesses are sort of slow growing cash flow businesses, maybe things that are like taking place in the third world that are employing women or things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all very great and noble. We're also not interested in those. So we're interested in this very small segment of the impact world which is basically like impact world meets Silicon Valley scale, right? So we're interested in these companies that are radically ambitious, that are taking really, really, really big swings, that are accepting huge risk, that still have a high likelihood of failure, but that if successful, will eliminate entire categories of problems. And those companies absolutely need venture capital funding. Uh, The other ones often don't, but the ones we're interested in definitely do. Absolutely. Okay. So in terms of the VC landscape in, in Europe, then, um, how, how does it really compare to Silicon Valley? Would you say? It's, it's, it's like a little infant. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, it's very, very far behind. It's far behind across a number of different domains. So, um, I think it's, it's, it's a far behind in terms of the, the number mm-hmm. of VC funds. It's far behind in terms of the total capital available. It's also, um, far behind in terms of its willingness to um, invest in like deep tech. What, what, what we do is like things that require a PhD. There are just way fewer funds here that are even willing to look at those type of things. Um, it's further behind in terms of the scale of ambition. So in Silicon Valley, um, I think because failure is just not at all frowned upon, right? Like it's just not at all. Like if you fail, it's like, oh, what, what's next, right? It's like no big deal. Whereas I still think across most of Europe, if you like try something and just like really fail, it's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing. You don't want to talk about it. Right. I think because of that, um, there isn't as much of a willingness to back really bold, ambitious things that are maybe likely to fail, but if they don't, it could be huge. Um, and then finally, um, there, even in the Valley, the type of investing we do, which is that, you know, business should be about more than just making money. It should also be about solving real problems. 
is in the minority. Even in Silicon Valley, it's in the minority. Um, but in Europe, it's probably like a tenth, 10% as popular as it is in Silicon Valley, right? So in Silicon Valley, our way of thinking about this, the world, which is that business can be about profit and, and good, is maybe like 5%. And in Europe, it's maybe like 0.5%. But do you think that uh, tech generally, not just in the VC space, but in terms of people creating products and services, do you think it's kind of going more towards impact now, especially, you know, with the media kind of demonizing tech all the time? Um, do you think companies really are kind of responding to this? I think uh, I can speak mainly about Silicon Valley, um, where, I'm, where I'm from and based, not from where I'm based. Um, I think that there is uh, an, an awakening happening where companies are at least trying to be more aware of the impact that their technologies are having on the world um, and are trying to avoid obvious negative impacts, which I guess would qualify in terms of like the one end of the spectrum that we talked about. Um, and so, and that's really positive because a lot of these companies, especially I, I think a lot of the social media companies have been, um, have been, creating behaviors that are super unhealthy for people, but that mm -hmm. are really good for their bottom lines. And they're now waking up largely because the employees are pushing back and saying, Hey, we're not really proud of what we're doing. We need to change this. Um, and so I think that's really positive. Um, and I do think that there's also um, more of a slow movement, but definitely a movement towards rethinking business in, in entirely and saying that we shouldn't even have businesses that are just making money, right? Like that, why would we have a business that's doing nothing but making profit? Like, let's only have businesses that are making money and actually improving the state of the world. So it's, it kind of seems like um, there's like this redemptive narrative in a way coming out of Silicon Valley, you know, because, you know, Silicon Valley is what birthed all of these companies that have been, you know, accused of doing bad things in tech. And it's now being countered by that. So do you see 50 years as kind of part of this effort to to counter this kind of history? I would say we're sort of next to that effort. Uh, but we're definitely benefiting from it, right? So, you know, our, our, our message um, for the last four years has been that um, while Silicon Valley has one of the, is one of the greatest areas of potential, like in the history of the world, it's also an example of one of the greatest misallocation of resources in the world, right? So misallocation of capital, misallocation of talent, and misallocation of time, right? So a tremendous number of incredibly brilliant people are working on like squeezing a tiny amount more out of an ad impression or getting you to spend 30 seconds more on site throwing screw through your photos, right? And that's just like a horrible misallocation of resources because those people are really brilliant, talented people who could be actually solving some of the big problems that we're facing. Um, and so that's kind of been our message. And the fact now that a lot of people in these companies are starting to say like, oh, geez, like we're actually not having an impact that we feel good proud about um, is definitely bringing more people sort of into this world of like, maybe I should not just focus on not doing bad. Maybe I should focus on doing good. Absolutely. So it's kind of like redistributing this talent in a, in a yep. way. Yeah. So in terms of your own vision then of this kind of impactful future of business, what changes can we expect to see in the next 10, 50 years? I think the biggest change we need to see is the death of this thing called the Friedman Doctrine. The Friedman Doctrine was um, put forth by this Nobel Prize winning economist, Milton Friedman, who was a U.S. economist. He popularized it in a 1970 op-ed in the New York Times magazine called, title of it was called, The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profits. And this op-ed reads like a parody of itself. Um, he literally says, 
He says that the businessmen, of course, he says the businessmen, the businessmen who uh, consider it their responsibility to do anything besides boost profit. And he says, for instance, take care of the welfare of their employees or the good of their customers or look out for the environment. He says, these businessmen are undermining the basis of free society. So it's like this really bizarre notion where he, he basically says that like, you know, the only thing a business person should focus on is profit. And as crazy as it is, it took hold. It's how the world thinks about business still to this day. And so this Friedman doctrine is, is getting chipped away at largely by millennials who kind of think, Hey, that sounds a little crazy. That doesn't make sense. And in fact, we see it leading to this world that is in peril where our climate is an incredible crisis. And, you know, you have people in the developing world who, who are dying of malnutrition while you have people in the rich world who are getting diabetes because they're eating too much, right? Like it's just clear something's broken about this idea. And so I think over the next 10 or 15 years, we could like put a stake in the heart of the Friedman Doctrine, which would be really exciting. And if we do that, then I think that we will unleash the engine of capitalism, which is an incredible engine for change, right? Like I don't think there are any forces in the history of the world that can bring about change as quickly as capitalism. Historically, it's either been neutral or unfortunately destructive change. But if we can align value with capitalism, then we can bring about some really positive change really, really quickly. And I think we could solve the climate crisis really quickly. We could eliminate a lot of diseases really quickly. We could eliminate malnutrition while making everyone involved in that super wealthy. Um, and that is very, very exciting. Hey, hey, welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. This is our episode number 127, and we are about to move on to the recommendation part of the podcast. And uh, I will start, and uh, my recommendation for today is an opinion piece that is called Google and Facebook are sucking the brains out of Europe. Uh, it was written by Lionel Laurent, and it was published on Bloomberg. So Laurent makes a valid, in my opinion, point about the migration of talent and particularly uh, scientific talent and entrepreneurial talent from uh, Europe uh, to the United States. And the examples here include, uh, say, Google's acquisition of DeepMind uh, quite some time ago, and more recently, a group of British quantum computing scientists moving to Silicon Valley to found a startup there. Uh, the startup is called Psyche. That's P-S-I-Q, if you're interested. So, And at the same time, the reaction to this process, according to uh, Laurent, uh, by the politicians in Europe is... Uh, well, it's just not there. Basically, nobody cares, as Laurent argues, because everyone is still trying very hard to protect the last century's heavy industries uh, rather than uh, trying to retain uh, deep tech talent. So uh, check out the full opinion piece and let us know if you agree with this point or not. And I will start then, uh, Natalie, uh, asking you, uh, how bad do you think this brain drain could be? And uh, is it there at all? Is it something we should be uh, uh, worried about? So I... I had a number of critiques about this article when it first came out. And I really kind of take objection with the brain drain terminology because sometimes even when people are moving abroad with innovations or with their companies, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a net loss for Europe. And I think Laurent uses a number of anecdotal examples to kind of give evidence of a larger trend. But I did a survey with Startup Heat Map and Balderton Capital last year that looked specifically at this question. And what you're finding is a lot of European entrepreneurs, founders, innovators, and researchers that had moved to the United States at one time are now 
finding Europe a more attractive place to move back to. So it's not always a zero sum game. And especially when um, innovators move, they might be coming back or it's a short term. They might have opportunities available there that they don't necessarily have in Europe. So it's not always a, a one for one trade off. So I don't think it's something to be completely alarmed about. I think he really is trying to kind of drum up a lot of controversy that doesn't exist, but I don't think it necessarily makes a lot of sense to get very angry or very agitated about some of these acquisitions. Um, I think we we have a lot of things that we can be proud of, but it is um, there are so many other factors that go into it that it doesn't necessarily um, lead me to think that there is such an outrage um, that that he um, claims that that there that we should be feeling. Well, I mean, I do, I do see his point though, and uh, it's not, it's not about uh, the acquisitions uh, per se, but in general, uh, shouldn't it be just about uh, creating the right environment uh, in the European countries that, uh, with which it would not be necessary uh, for the founders to leave the continent uh, uh, if it's just about access uh, to the capital or better regulatory environment uh, and stuff like that? I mean, it, it is kind of, kind of important, isn't it? It is, but that wasn't what the crux of his argument was. It was essentially that the United States was poaching these innovations and these researchers, which I think really kind of um, devalues the agency that they have in this situ- in, in this situation. So, of course, it's important to be, continue cultivating. Uh, great opportunities for research and innovation and creating companies in Europe. And I think that is what the commission and a number of these uh, domestic governments have been focused on for a long time, um, doing it in their own way. Um, but it's Europe and the U.S. are not complete um, direct substitutions for one another. And there's different assets that are available here and different assets that are available there um, that don't always make um, a, a complete 100% trade. So of course we need to continue um, building, but it shouldn't be thought of as a competition. And I think the terminology around brain drain is always couched in such a negative way. And when you talk to entrepreneurs, they're not thinking about it in that way. They're not thinking about this is a competition that Europe or America needs to win. They're thinking about developing innovations that maybe they have better access to one place or another. The, the geography aspect of it isn't something that is at the forefront of their minds. So continuing to develop great opportunities in Europe is something that I think everyone on the continent is focused on doing. Um, but looking at it as we're trying to compete with America and America is poaching talent, I don't think is um, necessarily a constructive way of looking at it. Well, fair point, uh, but uh, it does not have to be entrepreneurs uh, to think about uh, whether uh, they want to be in Europe or not. So it's it is uh, it's natural that they would just uh, think about uh, their products and uh, their innovation and uh, doing uh, their thing, and uh, they would obviously uh, gravitate towards places where it's uh, easier and more convenient uh, to do this thing, and it is for the countries. And uh, for the officials, uh, for the governments uh, in particular, uh, to think about how to create the right environment. So it's uh, I, I don't necessarily see how uh, these uh, two things are at odds here. 
Anyway, I think it's a good time to sort of pass the mic uh, to the audience. And if you have any particular opinion on this, or maybe you are one of these uh, uh, startups that has or has not moved uh, from Europe uh, to another continent, uh, do let us know if you have something to say. And we definitely will uh, run it as a comment uh, uh, next uh, time in the podcast. Now, Natalie, you wanted to... Uh, talk today about uh, something uh, uh, something more interesting, I suppose, and uh, even more controversial on that point. Well, it's a little bit different for sure. Um, <laughs> for those of you that that use Twitter, um, a number of you might have noticed, especially on desktop, for the last couple of months, Twitter has been encouraging users to try out their new redesign on desktop. Um, but for those of you that weren't brave enough to jump in and, and tr- test out the new version, most of you, if not all of you, will have been automatically switched over to their redesigned desktop site last week. Um, and I will um, be very honest and um, forthright to say that I hate the redesign. Um, it has made Twitter on desktop impossible for me personally to use. I find the design cluttered, the different text sizes, um, very confusing and distracting. But it seems like I'm in a pretty small minority. Um, there is some kind of people getting agitated about it, but it doesn't seem that it's, maybe Twitter is very good at stamping down the criticism. I'm not sure. But a week later, um, it's still the case, and my tweets have really dropped off dramatically, but maybe it's a good thing. Maybe I need to spend less time on the site. But anyways, I wanted to share a few pieces from the Twitter team and from Wired who have had the exclusive backstory on the redesign and the process behind it. One of the major critiques is that the redesign site for Twitter on desktop looks like a mobile site. And that's kind of everyone's first reaction when they see it. But that's because it is essentially a mobile site. So Twitter mobile and Twitter for desktop are now kind of the exact same site working off the same code base. And the engineering team did a long post about why they decided to develop kind of a singular code base for the site um, across all different types of devices. And so the new component-based code base, they claim, will now let the team iterate faster and incorporate new features across all types of platforms and devices in an integrated way. Um, it's a fascinating look to see what the future of web um, as more users shift to mobile might look like. But I kind of think that maybe it's a lazy approach to developing code, especially when you have different devices that afford you different opportunities, especially in terms of accessible technologies. Um, but anyways, that's kind of my critique. I really encourage you to have a look at that. Something additionally, which is interesting about the redesign is that it was helmed by a largely female product and developer team that they really kind of put up in front um, as really being behind it. So I appreciate kind of recognizing the designers and the product owners and developers behind the work. Um, but I still hate the redesign. <laughs> Anyways, I think the story behind it is compelling. Um, especially if you're a developer, you should have a look at it. Or if you just like looking behind the developer curtain, the piece from Twitter engineering is particularly compelling on how they've redesigned their code base and just why they did it and kind of how they got into the weeds of why it took so long. 
Um, and I think we will see a lot of digital products built like this in the future that kind of utilize a, same, a similar code base across multiple devices. There's so many new products being um web products coming out all the time that it does seem like a very um, useful way of um, being able to iterate and incorporate features. Um, but maybe I'm nostalgic. Um, I really, really don't like the new site. <laughs> <laughs> It's it, it's interesting. I didn't I didn't really notice uh, the change because I don't use the web interface. I use TweetDeck. Anyway, uh, speaking of Twitter, it's of course it's always interesting to read the internal sort of um, uh, stories uh, coming from the inside and uh, how things uh, work. And actually, I think we have had quite a bunch of those uh, uh, kind of stories uh, about Twitter, uh, mostly critical over the past uh, year or so. And what I, I and th although I cannot argue as to whether it is a lazy approach or not uh, by combining the code bases, what I what I can say based on the previews inside the uh, stories on Twitter is that I do not think uh, that the reason why uh, the new features was not, were not incorporated fast enough into the service was because the code base was fragmented. It I don't think this was the particular bottleneck, and I don't uh, think that uh, that this. Uh, particular improvement uh, will also make uh, the edit button for Twitter, for example, uh, come to life uh, any faster. <laughs> yes, that was a, a very desired feature that definitely was not brought on board. So um, a lot of people are still salty about that. They did incorporate a dark mode, um, oh, but sure. it was, um, that was something that was very desired but um, unfortunately, uh, no edit button. Yeah, the dark mode is the is the very new and hip thing this year. Apparently, Windows has it, uh, Twitter has it, everybody, every every app on my phone uh, seems to uh, be getting a dark mode. Yeah, yeah, and I would like to use TweetDeck more, but the firehose and kind of the amount of tweet volume is eleven times faster than regular Twitter, and it is just too distracting for me to use it. So I really am looking for an alternative solution that is not just mobile. Um, so if anyone has a great Twitter client that um, or a nice browser extension that can help me out, do let us know. I would really appreciate that. I really do miss being part of the conversation on Twitter, but I just can't get my head around this redesign. Yeah, if only Twitter didn't uh, effectively kill all the alternative clients uh, some time ago with some changes to its API. So I am just <laughs> out of luck here. <laughs> yeah, but uh, also I would hate uh, losing you on Twitter because you're so active. You always uh, write so much. It's a, it's a, it's a big loss. Well, I appreciate that, Andre. <laughs> Right. It is about time to wrap it up for today. Uh, that's it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you did like what you heard, please do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please do feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at all at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today and I do hope to see you soon in Europe. 
I'll be there very shortly. Thanks very much, Andre. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you.